Welcome to MVP Podcast. This episode is going to be looking at domestic abuse and the messages within media. I'm Kenneth McKenzie. I'm one of the national officers for MVP and Education Scotland, and I'm just going to hand you over to my colleague. Hi, everybody. I'm Angela McDonald, the other MVP Development Officer at Education Scotland. Thanks for listening today. We're really excited to have a fantastic guest with us this morning. Um, so I'd like to introduce Luke Hart. Luke, alongside his brother Ryan, is an award-winning domestic abuse advocate, an author and an international keynote speaker. Through their inspiring and educational keynote speeches, they have directly presented to tens of thousands of people and organisations across the world, sharing their family story of domestic abuse and violence. So Luke, welcome to our podcast and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. We talk about your family's story and the, the work you do in our MVP training for practitioners. So many of the people listening to this will be familiar with the, the fantastic work that you do and how you came to be a campaigner in this area. But for those that are not, do you mind if we start by you telling us a little bit about your family's experience? Yeah, sure. Um, so we were essentially oblivious to the fact that we were victims of domestic abuse our entire lives um, and for my brother Ryan and I it was only after our father murdered our mum Claire and our 19 year old sister Charlotte in 2016 that we actually even recognised for the first time that things were much worse than we'd ever considered and I suppose you know the last few years have been Ryan and I trying to make sense of a past that was completely misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the key things I think that we've recognized through our own story is that the general, the narratives around domestic violence don't work well when you're existing in coercive control. They're almost, they're very starkly different realities to live in. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the narrative around coercive control isn't developed enough particularly to help victims even notice it in front of them. So Ryan and I have gone through, um, well, after the murders, we raked through our past to try and understand how our father could have been the man that would murder mum and Charlotte and how we had missed it. Um, and actually what we uncovered from reading, from listening to other people's stories and from just sheer reflection on everything was that many of the ways that our father had achieved the control and the coercion weren't big incidents, right? They're, they're, in many cases, it was almost like a process of erosion over time, but mm -hmm. also it was very tactical. So he was very careful to, um, to get our mother constrained very early in the relationship, for example. So when he met our mother, um, you know, he threw away the contraceptive pills. He was flattering her at the start of the relationship, obviously, uh -huh. to draw her in, but he threw away contraceptive pills had a child, which was me, and that was then the anchor, right? And then he got married, then he moved us to the, the middle of nowhere in a rundown farmhouse where he could isolate mum and control her. And he, and he was very clever, I suppose, in terms of how he managed to distort our perception. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the big things that Ron and I talk about and try and get across to people is that um, coerced control doesn't just happen to you. It's not just a, a series of actions, it shapes you. And it doesn't just shape who you are, it shapes how you see what's happening to you. Um, and that means that after living with it for long periods of time, you're not an expert in it because actually it's made you blind to it as well. And that's what makes coercive control so complex. Um, and we found that 
it's incredibly hard for us to articulate our story um but we've we've had to over the last few years i suppose mm-hmm. refine our story down 30 minutes and uh, just so we can get people to listen and understand it but a lot of people they they it's so hard to put your entire life down to 30 minutes right or in mm-hmm. a in a in a digestible package that other people can understand yeah and what we've tried to do as best as we can is just to share elements of our own story so that other people can see reflections of it or the patterns or the the underlying dynamics elsewhere because it's very very complicated simply to say this is coercive control because you know the way it's carried out is very sophisticated and also it's personalized to the victims right so each victim has certain vulnerabilities and weaknesses and and ways of being manipulated and they're different right for some people it's you know they're poor for some people it's illnesses for other people it's you know maybe bad family relationships or or a a million different things and the, the abuser just kind of strains your life in all these dimensions where you're particularly vulnerable. And that means you can't just say this is coerced control. But what we hope to do is help people understand how it can operate behind the scenes and how it can achieve its goal, I suppose, of shrinking your space fraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we've spent, I suppose, the last few years just trying to help other people understand. Really encapsulated the complexity of it there. Yeah. Um, I think, Luke, and, you know, just how difficult it is when you're living with that experience to recognize it because it's become your reality it's become what you know do do you feel that we're making progress in that area of of there's certainly a lot more um around in the media a lot more articles a lot more discussions taking place about coercive control do you do you sense that yourself or do you still feel that we're we're kind of just scratching at the surface there so i think we're trying to make progress and i think that's the really important thing so lots of people Mm -hmm. are recognizing that if you don't understand coerced control you don't really understand domestic abuse and Mm -hmm. actually a lot of the harms are coercive control related you know they're not just these single incidents of violence a lot of the the accumulative harms are probably from the coercive control and i think one of the things that really stands out to me from my own experience is how we talk about, as I said in my previous response, how we talk about domestic abuse is often framed towards violence. So we'll ask people, mm-hmm. what what did he do to you, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to look for incidents of violence or, or, or just at least some discrete incident, right? That happened in a short period of time that represents what's going on. But coerce control isn't like that. We never could have really, if someone asked us, what did he do to you? Well, yeah. we didn't have an answer for that because he didn't, he didn't hit us, right? He yeah. didn't do a thing suddenly. What he mm. did was he took stuff away from us. So so what I often say, and I think this is a part of the way the conversation can evolve to encapsulate coerced control, is what we need to ask people is what can't you do, right? As a victim, what can't you mm-hmm. do? Because the harms of coercive control are to shrink your space for action, right? They're to make your life small, to basically imprison you or make you hostage in your own home. So the harms of that aren't bruises and broken bones. The harms of that are vastly restrained lives. And then the way that you can articulate those harms is by saying the stuff you can't do. So I can't see my friends. I can't go to work. I can't study. I can't even touch the light switches in my own home. I don't have access to a bank account. I can't, you know, I'm not even allowed to touch my own passport or I'm not allowed to drive. They're the harms of coercive control. But we don't see harms often in terms of what's absent. We're always asking for what's present. What do you do to you? And yeah. I think that that lens is well suited to violence, but it's completely ignores the harms from coercive control. And I think 
that aspect we're not very good at, right? We're not good at framing the question around mm-hmm. coercive control harms. Um, and I think that's something that we can all do better because when we start seeing, um, you know, the ghosts, I suppose, of what someone's life would have been like, but it isn't because of the coercive control, right? You're trying to ask what might have been. And then when you compare what might have been to what is, that gap is almost the evidence of the mm-hmm. coercive control. Mm. When we start asking those questions, we start to see how the abuser has controlled that person. And then also, the other thing I often say is we need to be asking, um, you know, I mean, in terms of what you can't do, victims aren't even aware of that often, right? Because it happens yeah. over a long period of time. So you could ask a victim, what can't you do? And they'll have all these reasons, you know, well, things have changed. We've got kids now and, uh, and all these stresses yeah. and stuff. They'll, they'll, they'll use the narrative the abuser has given them to explain away all of the things they can't do. But it's that kind of, um, what's the analogy? That frog in boiling water analogy, right? A, a frog in boiling water suddenly will jump out because it knows the water is going to kill it. But if you put a frog in cold water and you slowly heat it up, it will boil in there because it doesn't ever notice it's got hot because it's gradual, mm-hmm. right? Well, coercive control is the putting the frog in the cold water and slowly bringing it to boil. So if you ask someone what they can't do, they won't notice because the things they can't do have have basically been eroded away over a long period of time. So I often say to to mitigate that, you have to say, what can't you do compared to before you met this person? So that might have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And then that person can say, well, you know, I did used to see my friends every weekend. I did used to study. I did used to, you know, want to have progressed my career and have friends and stuff and now well i don't do any of those things and then they'll obviously use all the narratives the abuser's given them right oh, you're stupid or we can't afford it or you're ill now or we've got to look after the kids they'll use those explanations probably to explain the gap but by just putting that stark reality in front of them that at one point you had all this big full life now you don't it poses the question well did your partner have any any part to play in this or did port you in trying to expand your life and kind of just posing those questions i suppose will help the victim recognize that well when i did try maybe it didn't seem like he was stopping me but it certainly didn't seem like he was trying to help me right or Mm -hmm. they can start to really unpick it and go oh wait a second yeah he used to make it really awkward when i saw my friends so i thought i decided not to see my friends but actually he made it Mm -hmm. so uncomfortable that it was inevitable that i'd cancel my plans right and, and there's really sophisticated ways that the abuser can make you make your life small. It isn't always saying no. Sometimes it's making it so miserable when you do do it that you decide it's not worth it anymore. Yeah. And it can be all these kind of complex ways. And I think you have to let the victim put those two comparisons together, juxtapose what their life was before they met the abuser and what it is now, and then just start start reflecting on it. And I think eventually you kind of unravel it and it all it all becomes clear after a period of time. But I think those conversations aren't happening really but i think we're starting to think in those terms and i think that's the beginning mm-hmm. um and and you do see for example um in the media that i mean the media when when it happens to our family the media was awful and i often mention you know that there were people who were claiming our father was a good guy who was always yeah. caring and, and one media report um even said it was understandable and these sort of things are just ludicrous yeah. but but it isn't even just it isn't even just those stark, absurd terms like those. It's sometimes just how apparently good media outlets can frame the story through the perpetrator's eyes. So our story, for example, used our father's language and perspective in the sense that it constant all the media outlets constantly referred to 
um, the murder note he left behind as a suicide note, which frames it as his suicide over the murders, right? Yeah. Like, if you're going to kill someone and <laughs> and you write a letter, I'd call that a murder note. To yeah. get it as a suicide note, just sort of, it just, just gives that. the murderer all yeah. the pity, right? And and you saw that in some media reports, again, um, providing suicide, male suicide charity helplines instead of domestic abuse um, charity helplines. And again, that shows that it's seen as like, you know, poor man, you know, men's feelings are more important than women's lives. And all of these framings can actually make people see through the perpetrator's eyes, right? And and that makes them sympathize with the perpetrator. And then it makes us just demean the victims and blame them. And and I think Ryan and I have tried as best we can to specifically to train the media um, to help them. And we also work with a charity called Level Up to get some simple guidelines in place so that they don't make some egregious errors. Um, yeah. But again, it's still challenging because even though we've trained a number of media outlets, they yeah. still make these mistakes because it's so natural for us to sympathize mm-hmm. um, with these men. And I think that's that's the real challenge is we have to break out of that. And, and what Ryan and I try and do as best we can is to tell mum and Charlotte's story so people can understand the victims because mm-hmm. the victims are often silenced throughout their entire lives by the abuser. And then they're obviously silenced when they're murdered. Yeah. So people don't get to hear these victims' voices and stories. And Ryan and I, as best we can, have tried to help articulate the victim's experience so that it's easier for to tell story through the victim's perspective. And I think that's really crucial. The MVP programme, and I know I spoke a wee bit to you about it in the past, we we do a huge section in it when we're talking to practitioners and to young people around how important language is. Yeah. Um, the MVP programme was developed by Jackson Katz. I don't know if you know any of his work, but he talks a lot about language and, and, and the words we use and how we just, you know, frame and develop sentence structure to to have a narrative, as you just said. Um, mm-hmm. You obviously, a lot of your work is around that, Look, You obviously feel that's a really important area to, to tackle and challenge the way that media is reporting on domestic abuse. Yeah. That's right. And I think, so there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as I said, one of the biggest weapons the abuser has is to shape the narrative, right? They tell you the story of what's happening to you and you believe it. And they've often isolated you. So there's no one else you can hear from, right? Mm -hmm. You, you Like, for example, our father was always telling us the reason we couldn't do stuff was because we didn't have any money, right? We were poor. Um, And it wasn't his fault. His boss wasn't paying him. The government's benefit policy was getting worse or or whatever. Mm -hmm. There was always a reason why we couldn't do stuff. And that meant we couldn't afford the fuel to go out, do hobbies, see friends, whatever. And actually, we constantly heard, we haven't got enough money. We haven't got enough money. We need to make sacrifices. We believed it after a while. And we saw our father's behavior as a consequence of poverty, right? Poverty is stressful. He was behaving as any man who's grown up poor would behave, right? And we just thought that that is the narrative of our life. And Ryan and I, you know, we worked hard at school, went away, got jobs, saved up money, came back with money, thinking we could fix the problem. And it was only then we realized it wasn't about money at all. It was actually about control. Mm-hmm. Um, and our father was actually disposing of our family savings and money so he could trap us and say, you haven't got any money. You can't do it. If we had money, he can control us, right? You'd have to have a yeah. different narrative to control us. And that, that would be more complicated and more difficult for him. It's easy to get rid of money and say you can't do it because you can't afford it. It's objective. Um, mm-hmm. There's no negotiation. So the way that the, the abuser can mask what's going on, the way they can distract your attention away from the abuse and give it a different name and a different cause, that is really powerful. And that's how victims often don't know they're suffering coerced control because you know all of this complexity in your life is given a reason by the perpetrator. 
And then you haven't really got, you can't really understand what's going on because it's also complex. And mm-hmm. eventually you just think, well, that will have to do as an explanation because I don't really understand what's happening to me. So for victims, you know, trying to gain control of the narrative, trying to gain control of the perspective is really, really powerful. And that's hugely important for healing and also just for seeing it in the first place. And then also for the media, as I said, our father was actually, um, he was searching online for reports of men who killed their families for weeks and months before we'd even started planning to leave him. So mm-hmm. he was planning to kill us all. And the reason was often, you know, something he'd copied out of another media report, like jilted husband killed because of divorce or whatever. He was basically mm-hmm. copying and pasting all the reasons he could find for other men killing their families and then using those as his justification in his murder note to kill all of us. And that makes you realize that these the words we use, the perspectives we use aren't harmless because one, they blind victims to seeing the reality for yeah. themselves. And two, they empower abusers to carry out what they want to carry out. So we're we're empowering abusers to kill blinded victims. Like mm-hmm. that's not what narrative should be doing. Narrative should be empowering the victims to see what's in front of them. Yeah. And it should be disincentivizing the perpetrators. But the language we have is completely stacking the odds against victims. And I think that's something we all need to work on. And I, I do agree with the point that you know, language, but more importantly, perspective uh, needs to be addressed and particularly uh, seen from the victim's perspective. Hopefully part of the MVP programme that we're doing is starting to have the conversations and make people aware of what, what the language we use. So hopefully that, that'll start to have inroads in, in the schools that we work in. I think and- for children, it's really crucial because, I mean, yeah. children, you know, what is being a child except looking to adults to learn how to live, right? And if yeah. you're isolated with a perpetrator who's telling you this, that and the other essentially lying to you essentially you know imprisoning you you learn that you don't you don't argue with it i'm if if you can't obey the rules you don't question the rules you think you're weak you think mm-hmm. you're ill-disciplined and then you discipline yourself more to try and conform and over time these children they won't recognize there's anything wrong with the rules at home what yeah. they'll think is i'm not good enough i can't i can't meet the demands put on me and i'm a bad yeah. kid and that's pretty much what happened to us kids growing up you know we we were incredibly disciplined kids. We did great at school. And when we got into sport later in our lives, we were in intense athletes because we had huge self-discipline because we grew up in this home where there were these rigidly enforced, arbitrary changing rules. And it was really tough to understand what the rules were, let alone obey them. So we thought we were weak kids who weren't following rules very well. Yeah. So we constantly focused on being more disciplined so we could meet the rules that seemed to be evolving constantly at home. Mm-hmm. And then that, we, like I said, we still thought we were all disciplined kids, yet we weren't. We were highly yeah. disciplined kids. We'd internalized all that discipline and we took it elsewhere in our lives. And I think many people looking at us, for example, at school, thought we were great kids because we all were, we were super compliant. We always followed rules. We never spoke up. Um, we never rebelled right and kids should always be creative and testing the rules but because of the course control we grew up with we were like we were super super um, careful about everything we never made mistakes we never risked anything we never like went into the unknown it was just like what do you need me to do and then I'll do it as well as I possibly can so I think for children in particular you know helping them understand alternative narratives helping them see it empowering them to understand that you know this isn't okay is crucial because otherwise all they're doing is learning these things and then it's not until they get much older that they have to start unraveling it and that's mm-hmm. that's incredibly challenging i think i'm just struck by the way you described yourself at school actually just thinking about that and thinking about how you wouldn't have probably came to anyone's attention or 
needing support or help because you're just like model pupil if you want to call it that. Yeah. Do you think do you think the school would have seen things or do you think they could have helped better, if that makes sense? In yeah, your that's situation? A good question. Yeah, so I think um what we've found and I think this is very common, right, is that children who are very distressed in a stereotypical way are, are very quickly picked up, right? However, as much as mental illness is a response to distress, so is hyper-resilience is also mm-hmm. a response to distress. And the extremes at both sides are kind of maladaptive, right? The, the sort of extreme resilience that we showed isn't an unambiguous good because I'm, I'm quite, I'm, well, I am very detached emotionally and socially. So as a child, I excelled intellectually, but I didn't have any friends. I'm not, I'm, I'm emotionally clumsy. I don't really have, I don't, I don't express emotional nuance very well and I don't pick up on it very well. So I wear this kind of shield, right? Which is that I don't engage with life fluently or properly. That isn't perfect, right? That's not like we should make all children like that. In fact, I would say most people shouldn't be like me because it's mm-hmm. almost robotic how I go through life. And I think when you see children who are very, very resilient, we shouldn't just go, that's great, right? And these children are often praised as being mature, for example. And I'm sure uh-huh. many teachers have children yeah. who go, they're mature for their age. And actually, the question we should probably ask is, you know, you're not born with resilience. If a child is very, very resilient, we should probably ask the question, where's the source of distress from which they learn to be resilient? And if there isn't a clear source of distress, well, it might still be there. And there might actually be a threat to them. And that's what's really important. You know, when we look at children with mental illnesses, we often think, oh, there's a mental health problem. We need to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we might also ask, oh, there might be a source of danger in their life, right? Yeah. This distress yeah. might actually be still there and it might be troublesome. When we see a child who's very resilient, we don't ask, is there still a source of stress in their life? Because it's not a natural question to ask, but there mm-hmm. might well be, right? Um, and actually, that's something we need to think about. Um and, and the point as well, I think, is a really good acid test to figure out if a child is in this this second category I was talking about is they might be very intellectually successful and very driven, but you sacrifice the emotional and the social aspects, like I said. So these children yeah. are very independent. They won't initiate conversation. We never initiate conversation. I still don't. I don't start friendships. I don't. I'm not socially or emotionally proactive. I I, if I have friendships, they're with people who are super, super invested and put loads of effort into it because I'm just like engaged and independent. And that's really easy to pick up on, actually. You can see the children like that kind of being pulled around by others but aren't initiating any social mm-hmm. contact themselves. And I think that's one thing to look for to identify these children in the second category. But in general, I think, you know, there's probably a lot of complexity in that category that we're only beginning to understand because we're only beginning mm-hmm. to really recognise those children as sort of victims of trauma, I think. I think that's a really powerful message. I'm a guidance teacher myself, and I think just what you've said there's struck a chord with me. I'm already thinking just the questions that maybe I should be asking as a guidance teacher as when I'm in school and working with some young people. So, yeah, really powerful. I think that's a really powerful message for staff in schools. Thank you very much. Just thinking about that and reflecting on that and is there any other practical kind of strategies you think that schools could adopt to kind of support uh, just on the back of what you've just said there yeah so another I mean another thing is like coercive control is very very hard to articulate right it's really difficult like if you ask a child is everything okay at home Mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to say explain it articulately in a way that makes you go aha that's coercive control yeah and Mm -hmm. they're going to be saying all sorts of random stuff and you're just going to be what's going on here and the thing with coercive control as well the way I try and explain it is 
it's like a million pinpricks rather than a thump. The damage isn't, you know, you can't just say, my father punched me in the face, right? Because they're not yeah. going to say that. Everything in their life is infected with coerced control. So they're going to basically say everything, right, in their life. So they're going to list, oh, this happened and that happened and I can't touch the light switches and my father looks at me like this and blah, blah, blah. And you're going to listen to it and you're going to just think they've listed everything, right? Yeah. Well, everything is infected with coerced control, right? So, so the challenge is it's going to sound to you like this child's just kind of lost the plot, right? They've just, everything's, everything's a problem, right? And, and they, you, you can't, and you'll, you'll naturally want to say, no, let's just focus in on, on the issue. And they won't be able to. The challenge is those children who try to bring up coerced control will probably frustrate adults, right? Who, let's focus on the, what's the thing? What is the problem here? Let's try mm-hmm. to, and they'll give up and they'll go, no one understands. Maybe it's not a problem. Maybe I'm making it up. And eventually they'll stop talking. One of the really important things is having posters on coercive control. Posters that can articulate it and list some of the things that are happening. Make a name to it so that children who go into school, and this is happening to them, don't have to go through that horrible experience, that disempowering experience of trying to articulate everything in their lives yeah. and hope someone puts a net around it. Instead, they can point at that poster and say, that's happening to me, help. Mm-hmm. And that is like four or five words, maybe they can mm-hmm. get someone to at least refer them to someone else or whatever. But it's so hard to get a net around all the patterns of coerced control. And I think what we need to do is give children literally just like things they can lock onto and they can just point at. And I think coerced control more than many other crimes, probably more than any crime, we need to do all that work for them just so that they can lock onto it. And mm-hmm. I think for Ryan and I, it was only in the police station two days after the murders that we recognized we were victims of domestic abuse because we saw a poster on coerced control. And it was what st- stood out was basically just said coerced control across the middle of it. It didn't say violence. And that was really important. If it said violence anywhere, we would have gone, oh no, we haven't got that, violence. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's nothing to do with us, right? Ours is much less significant than that. It didn't mention violence, which was great because it didn't demean the rest of it. What was on there, though, was stuff like um, the rigid enforcement of arbitrary and changing rules, right? Mm-hmm. I never thought that was a crime. I thought that was just uh-huh. horrible and inconsistent and a personality flaw. But you think the rigid enforcement of arbitrary and changing rules. Okay. And then it, it said other things. It didn't say financial abuse, right? Because if someone said, is your father financially abusing you? I would have said, no, we haven't got any money. What do you mean? You just, it's all in the gray zone, right? Uh And you don't give it these domestic abuse loaded terms. And that poster was great because it didn't say the the really stereotypical cheesy stuff with just financial abuse, this abuse, that abuse, lack of space of action, or all the terms that people use, right? It said the rigid enforcement of arbitrary changing rules. It said, uh, takes full control of the money right um mm-hmm. often humiliates or criticizes right or like all these things i looked at this post our life on a poster and it almost uh-huh. it was almost surreal like being in the truman show that we there we were completely lost not understanding how we'd got there and there was this poster that just stilled our entire life down and rationalized it into literally six or seven bullet points and we looked at it and went why are we seeing this now? Why wasn't this at school? Why wasn't this mm-hmm. in the GPs? Why isn't this at supermarkets? Why isn't this in the state agents when we were trying to move home, right? Why isn't this in all those places that would have made a difference? And I think, mm-hmm. but like I said, coercion control is so, so difficult. And 
to identify and to articulate. And what we really need to be able to do is, particularly for children, help them just recognize it and point at it. And then we have to do the hard work as adults to help understand what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. But the children should just be able to flag it. And flagging close control is so difficult unless we have something like posters or something like that that can rationalize it down for the children and prevent those awkward conversations of them trying to just explain that life in general is really hard. Yeah, and I certainly think that's a great message to to think about. And I just think even just you naming some of the places that can be places of support, even like the supermarket, the estate agents, I think that's something the wider community could certainly look at as well. So, And you and your brother obviously are doing lots, speaking out and challenging attitudes kind of around domestic abuse and domestic homicide. Just thinking about you doing that, do, do you ever find it challenging? And if so, kind of what ways? Yeah, so... Um... I suppose, yeah, it's kind of exhausting. Although the more you talk about yeah. it, the less exhausting it becomes, right? Like, I mean, uh-huh. when we first used to talk about it, I would pretty much, I would fall asleep afterwards, no matter what time of day it was. If it was 10 o'clock in the morning and I did a speech, I'd, I'd pretty much fall asleep for the day and wake up tomorrow. So, like, emotionally, yeah. it was incredibly exhausting. And like I said, because I'm not, like, I wasn't socialized properly, I guess, growing up. Yeah. I don't have, I'm not, like, uh, au fait with my emotions particularly. They sort of, they exist inside me without me having a deep connection to them. And they just like mm-hmm. burn my energy up. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't notice them, but they just wear me down. That was really, really difficult. And I, I was just like passing out and there's a lot of fatigue and tiredness and stuff. Um, however, though, I think the big thing for Ryan and I was the recognition that that's something, I guess, that we try and help other people recognize, right? The way out of this, because when you're in it, you feel completely trapped. But hopefully our story as much as anything else it teaches people, it teaches people that there's a way out of even, mm-hmm. you know, massive tragedies and traumas. Yeah. Um, and, and that, as I tried to articulate, is sort of kind of how we've got there. Mm-hmm. That journey you described, Luke, that's obviously been a, a long journey and process for you and has helped you and, and Ryan heal, you know, will have helped others. And I know I've read, you know, some of the testimonies and exchanges you've had with people who've listened to you talk and, and I've heard you talk in, in, in Edinburgh as well and, and there was people there in the audience that it obviously were, were recognising situations and relationships they were in and that will undoubtedly have been you know validating and helpful for them to just you know be part of that journey of healing that, that you both have had. If, if you had any backlash if that's the right word I, I guess we're quite interested in engaging men and boys in the debate about domestic abuse and healthy relationships and how gender stereotypes and and notions about masculinity can impact both in their lives but also on their relationships and can lead to you know things like domestic abuse and other forms of gender-based violence and we're always trying to engage our young men in our schools in that work and and moving away from gender-based violence being seen as a a woman's issue or gender equality being seen as a woman's issue Um, and I just wonder have you as, as a man speaking out in a sphere like that have you found any other men in particular have had some kind of backlash because you see that in social media don't you other men kind of challenging some of the discussions and some of the you know um the ways that that we're trying to change things have you experienced any of that yourself so a little bit but some of it might have been our own fault as well right so um but i think one of the interesting things is because of who our father was 
I think we I've had changing thoughts on this on this problem, right? How to get men involved and what men need to mm. do. Like mm-hmm. they've changed a lot as I've changed, I guess. And I guess initially and for most of my life, I always just thought all displays of masculinity were just bad because it was just our father was the man in our life, right? Who mm-hmm. who'd become my anti role model, and I just kind of generalized who he was which was all the bad parts of masculinity to an extreme it's just masculine in general and i guess after the murders i was just like this is all wrong we just stop it right just stop mm-hmm. all of it because it just leads to this and i and i guess i never had a good male role model really it was just you know my mum and charlotte were our role models our father was our anti-role model and yeah and we just saw the kind of kindness and and the sort of compassion that they had is just that was the only thing we ever thought about right um, so I guess after the murders, we very much were just sort of condemning of many of the aspects of our father. And I guess one of the things I've come to realize, though, is that, you know, why did our father do what he did? And it was very, very clear to me from the murder note and who he always was. He was very bitter. He was very resentful. He was always like he always felt like he was the victim. Right. And that was his mentality. That was the mentality he always carried forward. And it was this, it was a mentality of weakness, basically. It was a, you should be looking after me, right? I I can't look after myself, essentially, was implicit in that. And that he was kind of, he sort of put himself above us, but also he considered himself like a, a victim of us in a kind of absurd sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that the men who posed the most danger the men who were weak basically psychologically weak and i think the way we use weak means lots of different things to different people right i don't mean you know weak as in physically or weak as in you mm-hmm. know like whatever i think for me the weakness that makes men dangerous is a kind of a weakness of cowardice like they're not willing to take responsibility they're not willing to look yeah. after themselves it's a it's a failure to acknowledge their social role i suppose particularly in a family and in a relationship it's that weakness and that cowardice that means that they see everyone else as supporting them but they don't see themselves as supporting anyone else and i think that failure of these men to adopt a sort of a useful social role in their family leads them to become very resentful and very bitter because they think everyone should be looking after them and they think that you know they have no responsibility to to their family but their family has total responsibility mm-hmm. back so everything that isn't perfect is an affront it's an it's a it's humiliation it's emasculation right every time something's wrong it's because we've we've conspired against him we've we've tried to usurp his power in the family right like yep. that's how they see the world and I, I genuinely think that the re- I was I was always averse to sort of any kind of male displays of almost even confidence at times, right? And 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 male strength, right? Strong men, and and because yeah. I just saw their capacity for violence, right? I didn't see them for who they were. I just thought mm-hmm. if you decided to hurt me, you'd win. But actually, what I've come to realize is that men who take responsibility, who are courageous, who care about themselves in a in a not in a sort of dangerous self-interested way, mm-hmm. but in a, a self-respecting way, men who are, you know, physically and intellectually developed, you don't feel weak. <laughs> you don't feel a victim of the world. You don't feel mm-hmm. a threat. You feel more comfortable to accept your social roles and your responsibilities. And if you willfully see your role to help other people and you acknowledge it and take part in it, you're not a threat to other people. I genuinely think the most dangerous men are 
those who are as i said weak and cowardly in a moral sense mm -hmm. in a social sense in a relational sense and what we need to be doing i believe and then this will probably change in the future i said my views keep changed on this but <laughs> i genuinely think we need to help men develop because i think what we're doing is developing infantile men right intentionally and unintentionally we're developing men who aren't actually growing beyond boys and when they go out into the world they expect women to look after them like their mum did right mm -hmm. they expect other people to look after them socially emotionally physically sexually whatever men expect women to look after them that isn't women's problem that's men's problem and yeah. it isn't a problem of men being too strong it's a problem of men being too weak and what we need to do i genuinely think is try to develop stronger men but i think my instinct was always don't develop stronger men because they're better at fights right yeah. they're gonna hurt us more <laughs> and, it, and it but i think it's paradoxical i think the more we can develop strong confident uh, men who have self-respect the more yeah. willfully they will adopt social roles to help others and i genuinely think we're not doing that and i think sometimes some of our social conversations are actually making men weaker and more infantile right and actually what we need to be doing is finding roles that help men develop so that and i generally think you can only help other people when you've helped yourself and that's something i learned mm -hmm. from my own experience right we need men who've learned to help themselves to develop themselves to face challenges and develop their own responsibility um and i don't know how we do that and i don't think we're doing it now um and i don't i don't think actually traditional masculine norms are necessarily a bad thing you know i think the way they're interpreted can to be taken to extremes like our father mm -hmm. but i think sometimes some of them in the right context and with the right intent behind them can be really useful like being stoical for example is actually really important um mum was incredibly stoical right and that was a really masculine trait it was our father often who was quite hysterical because he felt he was a victim all the time mm -hmm. but mum was very stoical and that calmed us as children it gave us a sense of certainty yeah. comfort of protection i think sometimes being angry isn't always a bad thing right or we talk about aggression for example aggression isn't always a bad thing right if you're aggressive in terms of trying to destroy other people's boundaries trying to shut their life down like our father was i think that's bad obviously that's incredibly bad but i think being aggressive to stand up for what's important to stand mm -hmm. up for the people to stand up for your own boundaries if someone's trying to crush you or yeah. coercively control your life away i think being aggressive is important if you're defending what needs to be defended i think these conversations are probably way beyond my pay grade or, or, <laughs> or, or like but I, i'm sort of trying to figure out my own feelings about it and i think what ryan and i have found is it was only by actually not hating masculinity in its totality that we learned to recover i suppose because we were always so afraid of it right that if we adopt these traits we'll be just like him and it was only by kind of learning slowly to sort of yeah. to take gentle incremental steps towards our kind of full humanity that some of these and integrate them into our personality and learn to balance them and, and develop ourselves that we sort of have realized we're much calmer right we're not always we're not fighting this shadow of masculinity in ourselves that we're terrified of embodying and terrified of what it'll do to us we're actually we're actually much more comfortable um than we were before and i think the challenge is for young men is I think it's how do you integrate those aspects of your personality without letting them dominate. I think when it goes wrong, someone like our father is when their entire life becomes in service of their masculine ideals, right? To the point where when they're emasculated, they will kill everything and themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to our father, right? It was 
you've emasculated me by taking my wife and child away from me. That's that's his masculine part of his personality that was damaged by that. And that was what he killed for. The challenge is, you know, how do you integrate that masculine personality in service of something positive? And I, and yeah. I think that's a really, really hard question to answer. And I don't know it. But for Ryan and I, I think we've just tried to, we've tried to be um, really reflective of all the things we saw our father do and then understand mm-hmm. the differences. Thanks, Luke. And it's, as you say, it's such a complex area and it's it's a, a difficult question as well to answer because <laughs> yeah, there's, so <laughs> yeah, there's so much research going on in this area and mm-hmm. we're still trying to find, you know, most effective ways to engage um, young men talking about domestic abuse and gender-based violence. Um, and uh, the this podcast is going to be kind of part one of two. Um, so next week we are speaking to um, the Men's Project in Western Australia, who are doing some really great research around kind of masculinities yeah. and, and gender norms mm-hmm. and how we can kind of um, better engage men in having these conversations and, um, you know, looking at their own well-being and how this really negatively impacts their lives, as if you've touched on as well. Yeah. So um, yeah. hopefully listen to yourself today and then hearing our other podcast will be um, give our practitioners uh, something to think about. Um, Definitely. So it's such an I important think, area, isn't it? So yeah, it, yeah it's absolutely. so yeah, so as and you know we have some fabulous young men who yeah. um, are our MVP mentors, as we call them, the senior pupils who deliver the program within school. Um, and we have some great young men involved in the program who are fantastic advocates um, for um, the work they do, and you know, challenging and engaging their their kind of direct peers um, in the work. So um, we're very lucky in that. I'm sitting here just contemplating everything you've just said, and just as <laughs> yeah, I lots and to I, think. yeah, and I think I think the biggest thing for me after things that I'm already thinking that I need to do to be a better guidance teacher if that makes sense just with what you were saying about looking at individuals and maybe reframing the questions and asking and I just think wow and it's yeah you've 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 I you've had a profound effect on me so thank you very much <laughs> uh, for being here I don't know the answers but I I no, just plough over the questions a no. lot as you can see yeah. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Luke. It's been really uh, a pleasure to have you on. I mm-hmm. so appreciate you yeah. sharing your story once again, because I'm sure that's not always an easy thing to do. Even, you know, I, I know you do it a lot, but I'm sure it's not always mm-hmm. an easy thing to do. Um, so we really appreciate yeah. that. It will be really beneficial for our practitioners to, to hear more of your story and your own voice and in your own words than just having us talking about <laughs> it at our training events. Um, so that's fantastic and and hopefully really raise awareness um of particularly coercive control yeah. and get people start thinking about what they're doing in school how, how they're supporting young people and families and maybe you know what else can be done and challenging themselves to kind of go that wee bit further and think about how what we can put in place to better support the young people in, in our education system so thank you so much for your time this morning it's really been lovely speaking to you okay thanks for having me